Well, good morning, church. So good to see you, be with you here this morning. It is a delight to know that although this is just one day out of the week, this is just an hour in our life, together, hour and a half in our life, that this has great commission, eternal significance. Grateful for this, grateful for you. One thing before I preach um, about the hospitality team, um, uh, I'll, I'll be leading that. I have a, a, an interest in hospitality, and, and so I just want to put in one more final plug. Uh, lunch is provided. Um, maybe that's a bribe, maybe not. But I figure planning meetings are always better when you've got food there. And if there's not food there, can you legitimately call it a Christian meeting? I don't know. So there's going to be food there. And, uh, and I just want to talk about, you know, how can we make this church the friendliest church on the face of the planet? Maybe that's a bit too of a lofty goal. But hey, go big or go home, right? So, uh, so how can we uh, welcome and embrace and care for newcomers in our midst? And so again, uh, even if you don't feel like you're the most outgoing person in the universe, um, if you have a heart to help people be connected into a local church and you've got some ideas for how to do that, I could desperately use your creativity and help and innovation because I'm not good at any of those things. So I encourage you that if you've got a little time, if you've got an hour to spare, I'm going to try to keep it to an hour. Uh, just have a good, fun, vibrant, creative hospitality meeting. And um, if you can't be there, no sweat, we'll, we'll do it again. But uh, we want to make this church uh, a church that uh, goes from friendly to friendships, right? Not just say hi and be friendly as people enter in, but, but even that we absorb strangers into our lives. That's the local church. And we should be better at that than anybody on the planet. Well, I am excited for Titus. I'm excited for the text this morning. Um, but I'm just a man, and so I need uh, to go to the Lord one more time in prayer. hope that's okay. Let me pray, and uh, I'll pray for you. You pray for me, and then we launch. Oh, Lord, we are grateful for this morning. Oh, Lord, because every Sunday is a reminder, Christ, of your resurrection from the grave. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And so, Lord, we stand here, we sit here, we meet here this morning, O Lord, because 2,000 years ago, a man rose from the dead, rose himself from the dead. And it's in resurrection hope that we hear your word proclaimed. It's in resurrection hope, O Lord, that we name your name, O Christ. It's in resurrection hope that we love one another and pray for one another. And I pray, O Lord, that your word would go forth and that you would transform the lives of your people. I pray that you would give them great hope, great courage, great consolation, O oh Lord, that our eyes would look upward to Christ and that, we, and that, and that Christ, that your, the enjoyment of your presence would be almost tangible this morning as your word is proclaimed. So Lord, we very much need your help and we ask you for it always and only for the glory of Christ. Amen. You know, one of the ways it seems that Hollywood gets its revenge on Christianity is by portraying pastors as less than commendable characters. That's true, isn't it? And I'm sure you've seen the caricatures. Hollywood loves, they, they love to portray pastors in all sorts of unflattering ways, overbearing, out of date, embarrassingly old-fashioned, self-righteous, naive, stupid, out of touch, insensitive, hypocritical, and money-grubbing idiots whose profession and advice is arbitrary and meaningless. Right? Tell me I'm wrong. 
And I'm sure, I'm sure in the history of the world, there were some buffoons out there who called themselves pastor, who, have, who actually met the stereotypes. Of that, I'm sure. And yet, and yet, what the executives in Hollywood don't realize, in fact, most people don't realize this, is that pastoral ministry in the local church is one of the most weighty callings that exists on the face of the planet. I know that sounds overdramatic. I, I thought so too. And I was hesitant to even say that to you for fear that it would make it sound like that pastors are more important than other Christians, which they are categorically not more important than other Christians. But when I began to think again about what the New Testament actually says, it became clear that few callings in life have more weight and gravity than pastoral ministry. And the reason for that is because pastors, elders, they are to preach the word and feed the flock and shepherd the sheep and lead the church behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness, which tells us the Christ-exalting success of a local church or the Christ-defaming failure of a local church is first and foremost dependent upon the men you have in leadership. And speaking of leadership, that's exactly what's on Paul's mind in the letter to Titus. And he's not just thinking about leadership, he's thinking about the church as a whole. And the reason he is, is because Paul's letter to Titus, what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, whether planting a new church, whether resurrecting a dead church or nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And, and although Paul's got a whole list of things he says you need to be a healthy church, uh, the first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders. And he calls them elders. And to be an elder, you need to be qualified. And Paul gives 15 qualifications divided up into three categories that he says you must have and be to be an elder in the local church. And this morning we look at the first of those three categories that Paul says an elder must have, which means what we're going to look at is sexual purity and parenting. That's the category. In other words, lust in the heart and leadership in the home, which means Paul pokes around in the most private thoughts and desires of a man. He invades the most unguarded moments of a man's life when he's alone by himself behind closed doors and no one can see him except God. And he says, there, right there. In those private unguarded moments, that is who a man really is. And who he is in those moments is the deal breaker that determines if that man is blameless and thus is qualified to lead the church. That's where Paul's going. Lust and leadership, purity and parenting, holiness in the heart and headship in the home. And yet that being said, I don't want you to make the tragic mistake of thinking, well, this is only for men or this is only for guys who are thinking about becoming elders. No, no, this text here, this is hauntingly relevant for every single person sitting in this room. Do you know why? Because the question, 
what do elder qualifications matter to me if I'm never going to be an elder is kind of like asking the question, what does it matter if the surgeon who's going to operate on me is a drunk or not if I'm never going to be a surgeon? Do you see? Meaning, if they're going to keep watch over your souls, which is what elders are supposed to do, then they had better be spiritually qualified to do so. The ones in whose hands you place the care of your soul, which is what elders are to do, they had better live lives of Christ-exalting purity and maturity and holiness. But the second reason why these qualifications matter for everyone is because... um, Every qualification on the list required for elders is also the exact same standard to which everybody who names the name of Christ is called. It's the same standard. You see, elders are called to kill sexual lust and to lead their homes, not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how to. In other words, elders do what they do so that you will do what they do because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. And I know what this sounds like. If we're going to talk about purity and parenting, if we're going to talk about lust in the heart and leadership in the home, I know that it sounds like that you are in for a big heaping helping of discouragement pie this morning because how how much more raw and vulnerable can you get than, than lust and leadership in the home? But I assure you, I promise you, that although the conviction over sin will be great this morning, the consolation in Christ will be greater. Although, like the doctor says, this might sting a little bit, the transforming power of Christ abounds this morning to give you the hope that holiness is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. So here we go. The inspired resume of biblical elders, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Here's where we're going. If you like roadmaps, here is one. The next three sermons in Titus, we're going to see three categories. The next three sermons in Titus, we're going to see three categories in which biblical elders must be blameless if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. That's where we're going. Three categories in which biblical elders must be blameless if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. So you see where we're going. Three sermons, three points, one point every sermon. I know that sounds like overkill, but trust me, this is worth our time, okay? So here we go. Category number one. Category number one in which an elder must be blameless. Here it is. An elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. An elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. Look where Paul begins in verse five. He says, for this reason... I left you behind in Crete, Titus. Why? That you would set in order the things which remain and you would appoint elders in every city or church as I commanded you to do. Well, who can serve as a church if any man is blameless? Now, do you see what's going on here? 
After, get, after Paul gets released on parole, the first thing he does is he grabs Titus and they book a flight to the island of Crete where they begin planting churches and preaching the gospel. But for whatever reason, not explained in the text, Paul had to leave Titus by himself to finish the work and so to help him plant healthy churches that reach God's elect and advance the Great Commission, he writes a letter and he sticks it in an envelope and he licks the envelope and he seals it and he stamps it and he sends it and that letter you have in your Bibles 2,000 years later called Paul's letter to Titus. In other words, blueprints for a healthy church. And what is the first thing that Paul says you need to be a church like that? What did Paul tell Titus that he had to do in those churches to make them healthy churches that change the world? For this reason, I left you behind that you would appoint elders in every church. There it is. Appoint elders, which means we're talking about leadership. We're talking about shepherds appointed by God to labor in the trenches and to help their people live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That's what we're talking about. And yet, there are three preliminary things that we have got to get to the bottom of, three preliminary issues. These are sort of sub-points here. Number one, we need to get to the bottom of the title of elders. Why are they called elders? Number two, we need to talk about the gender of elders. Why are they men? And number three, we need to talk about the standard for elders. So number one, the title of elders. Why are elders called elders? And we saw last week that this is not some hand-me-down title, or this is not some arbitrary title, this is not some hand-me-down from Jewish culture. No, the Greek term literally means older ones, older ones. And the point is not a man's age necessarily, but his maturity. It, it's a title of maturity. In other words, we saw last week that the title of elder assumes a, a level of Christ-exalting maturity and purity and holiness that everyone can see and has seen for years regardless of their age necessarily. Because again, it does not matter how much confidence or charisma or even competence a man may have if he doesn't have verifiable, observable Christian maturity that everyone can observe. That dude ain't qualified to lead the church. He might be qualified to lead the country, but he's not qualified to lead the church. Because the thing is, it is not so much great talent that God uses so much as it is great likeness to Jesus Christ. Preliminary issue number two, the gender of elders. The gender of elders, which Paul makes perfectly clear, they are to be men. They're to be men. And we know that because in the very next verse, Paul says elders are to be the husband of one wife. And all of the nouns and pronouns and adjectives that Paul uses, all of them are in the masculine gender, not to mention the fact that every single text in the New Testament that describes elders, pastors, shepherds, that all of them display them to be men alone and not women. And, and just saying that out loud, we kind of wince internally, don't we? We cringe just a little bit. This feels risky. This, this feels controversial. 
To say that according to the Bible, men alone and not women are eligible to be elders feels like something of which we should be ashamed. And probably the reason for that is not only undue pressure from a feminist agenda, but also, but also because women have legitimately suffered under cruel and irresponsible and idiotic men. That has happened. And, and the thing is, we don't know. We don't know how to responsibly and carefully and graciously and lovingly and courageously talk about women's roles without sounding like misogynistic morons. We don't know how to do that. Now, what we all agree on is that the dehumanization, discrimination of women, um, that is an outrageous and despicable sin of which everyone should be ashamed. No one disagrees on that. And no one, and I repeat, no one should be better at truly honoring and valuing women as equally created in the image of God as the church. No one should be better at that than the church. I'm just saying the fact that men alone are called to be elders in the local church is not despicable, and it's not something of which we should be ashamed if we're doing it right. Why? Because when we make distinctions between men and women, like who can serve in the church as a pastor or not, listen carefully. The issue is not a difference in, between men and women in terms of their worth or value before God, but rather the difference we are making concerns their roles and their functions in the family, in the church, and in the Great Commission. Does that make sense? In other words, men and women have equal worth and value and dignity before God, being equally created in the image of God. The difference, therefore, between men and women only concerns their respective roles and functions as men and women in the plan of salvation. Let's put it this way. God made some to be quarterbacks. God made some to be wide receivers, and they all equally do equally and complementary things they need to do to win the game. Not one is better than the other, but you need both of them to win the Super Bowl, do you see? And in the exact same way, you need both men and women. Men doing what God made them to do, women what, what God, doing what God made them to do, so that you can win the Great Commission. You see, there is something about biblical manhood and masculinity that glorifies God when men lead with love and courage. And there is something about biblical womanhood and femininity that equally glorifies God when they serve and support in all of the various ways that women are gifted and when they support that leadership with loving sacrifice. See, bottom line, men alone are called to lead with love and women are called to lovingly and sacrificially support that leadership and make it the best that can possibly be because together a harmonious three-dimensional display of who God is is put on display to the world. Oh, women of this church, I want you to feel valued and loved and shepherded and cared for, and I want you to feel maximized 
for the Great Commission. I want you to feel maximized as instruments in the Redeemer's hands who make different but equally significant contributions to the Great Commission that men do. And I want you to rejoice in the Bible's description of your role, knowing that the Bible's Bible's role for you, that God's role for you is not a prison that constrains you, but rather is that which liberates you to be who God created you to be. I hope that helps. Which brings us to preliminary issue number three, the standard for elders. The standard for elders, which is to be blameless and above reproach. Look at verses five and six together. For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you would appoint elders in every church. Well, who can serve as an elder if any man is blameless? Stop right there. Now, you you see what Paul's doing in verse 6, right? After commanding Titus to appoint elders in every church, he begins to unfold in verses 6 through 9 the qualifications a man must have before he can serve as an elder in the local church. And you notice that the very first qualification on the list is that a man is to be anegletas, blameless, above reproach. And do you remember last week what it means to be blameless? It doesn't mean sinless, But it means that an elder's life, although highly imperfect, is so radically transformed by sovereign grace through the word that it puts Jesus Christ on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. It means that nothing is hidden in his life, which, if exposed, when all the facts are in, would in any way bring his God, his life, or his church into public disrepute. It means there are no scandals, no skeletons, no secrets, no shame, nothing hidden, nothing to hide. You could peek in his windows. You could rummage through his drawers. You could look under his bed. You could scour his internet history. You could record his most secret conversations for everybody to hear. And what you would find is not sinless perfection, but what you would find is a life radically transformed by sovereign grace. And so the question is, How do you know if you're blameless? How do you know if you're blameless or not? Which is the standard to which everybody is called. So, so, because we all struggle with something, don't we? With multiple things. So how do we know, how can we tell when the normal struggles with sin in the Christian life have crossed into the territory where we're no longer blameless? How do you tell? You ask yourself these kinds of questions. Number one, are there some sins that you would never ever do in church, but you would do somewhere else? Number two, who are you and what do you do when no one's around and no one can see you except God? Number three, if you knew you could indulge in the filthiest sin possible, and no one would ever know about it, no one would ever find out about it except God, would you do it? Number four, is the only thing that keeps you back from certain sins the fear of not getting caught 
and not because of who God is, because that is a world of difference. And how you answer each of those questions determines if you are blameless or if you need to become blameless. And I just want you to know, you can be blameless. You can have that. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you can taste the pleasure of a blameless life. It's it's there for the taking. Why? Why? Because what Christ purchased with his death, get this now, because of what Christ purchased with his death was not just the cancellation of your sin debt of the past, but what he purchased was all the power you need to overcome sin and temptation in the future. Do you see? Because the words of the hymn are infinitely true. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And speaking of being blameless, finally that brings us to category number one, in which an elder must be blameless. And it is that an elder must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family. He must be lethal over lust and faithful over his family because you can tell what Paul's beginning to do here. After telling Titus that elders must be blameless, he begins to unfold the first manifestation, demonstration of what it looks like to be blameless. And what it looks like is that a man is lethal over lust and faithful over his family. You see, Paul graciously jabs his finger in two of the most raw and delicate nerves that affect every single person in this room in some way or another. You see, what Paul is after are the most private, vulnerable moments of a man's life when no one is watching him except God. And you can tell, category number one, it comes in two parts. Category one comes in two parts. First, an elder must be lethal over lust. Look very carefully at verse six. Look what he says. For this reason, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you would appoint elders in every city or church as I commanded you. But who can serve as an elder if any man is blameless? Well, what does it look like to be blameless? Here it is. If a man is the husband of one wife. There it is. That's the first demonstration, manifestation that a man is truly blameless and can serve as an elder in the local church if he is the husband of one wife. There it is. And you might be thinking, um, wait a minute. He's talking about marriage here. You said that he was talking about sexual purity and lust. And I say, no, Paul is assuming that most elders will be married, but the core fundamental issue about which he's concerned is sexual purity and lust. That, that has to be what he's talking about. That ha- what else could the text mean? Because I'll have you know, there are some people who say that what Paul means here is that elders must be married, that if they are single, they are ineligible for eldership. The problem with that is, Paul's language is deliberately ambiguous. 
You notice he doesn't command that they be married. In fact, he doesn't even use the word married or marriage. And furthermore, Paul himself was single. And in 1 Corinthians 7, get this, he commended singleness as an advantageous, if not even more advantageous way to advance the Great Commission. That's what he says. It's even more advantageous. You see, Paul isn't demanding that elders be married. He is assuming that in most cases, elders will be married, in which case they need to be the husband of one wife. And others will say, no, 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 that, that's well, what Paul's talking about is that a man can serve as an elder if and only if he has no remarriage or divorce in his background. That's what it means to be the husband of one wife. And at the first crack of the bat, that seems like they've got a good point. And yet the problem is, the problem is, there is nothing in the New Testament that forbids someone from getting remarried after the death of a spouse. There, there's nothing that forbids that. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul encourages that very thing. But then you think about divorce, and, and, and although divorce is an unfortunate reality, and it's never spoken of in the Bible uh, as, a, as a preferred course of action. Listen very carefully. The New Testament does, however, allow a limited flexibility where some particular situations allow for divorce in such a way that the divorced person can still be blameless and above reproach. In other words, divorce in and of itself does not automatically disqualify a man from eldership. I mean, it's case by case, and you have to investigate the situation, but it does not in itself disqualify a man from serving as an elder, which leaves us with one final option. What Paul is after when he talks about the husband of one wife, get this, what he's after is a one-woman man. That's what he's after, a one-woman man. In other words, He's talking about a faithful man. He's talking about a holy man. He means a man who not only made his vows, but keeps his vows. At the end of the day, what Paul is after is a life of uncompromising sexual purity and a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust. Because polygamy and adultery and the weekend fling and homosexuality and pornography or any other deviation from the Bible's standard of sexuality is exactly what Paul has in mind here. And that standard is the same whether one man is single or another man is married. Nothing changes. And let's be absolutely clear here. Paul is not talking about the dude who's always hanging by a thread, towing the line, always quivering on the brink, about to give in to temptation, who needs a thousand precautions and firewalls and, and 15 accountability partners to prevent him from jumping into some grimy hole in the internet. No. Paul is talking about a man so utterly captivated by the glory of Christ and so absolutely gripped by the realities of God's word that they see the pleasure of lust for what it really is, namely counterfeit pleasures that can never satisfy his soul. That's what Paul's after. Because a blameless man, single or married, is lethal with lust. And so men, 
How are you doing? How are you doing in this area? Current elders, future elders, husbands and singles, are you a one-woman man? Which means I am asking you, are you pursuing a life of uncompromising sexual purity? Single or married, are you pursuing a life transformed by sovereign grace in the area of sexual lust? Because I'll have you know that sexual sin is kinda like those cylinder yellow bee traps. Have you seen those? You know what things I'm talking about? They're yellow cylinders where the hornets can get in, but they can't get out. It's kind of a demented thing, honestly. Yellow jackets are drawn irresistibly into the trap. And even though the evidence of the trap's destruction is right in front of their beady little eyes, they still plunge themselves into the trap in search of a satisfaction that they are never, ever going to find. For whatever reason, the amputated corpses and severed heads and mangled bodies of their foolish comrades who have went before them into the trap go unnoticed, and yet in they go, having no idea that what lies before them is destruction. That is exactly what sexual sin is like. It's exactly like that. You are drawn irresistibly into a trap, in search of a fulfillment and a satisfaction that you are never, ever going to find. And even though you have to step over the dismembered bodies of the comrades, the foolish comrades who went before you to get to the prize, in you go into the trap, not knowing that the pleasure you seek will only lead to your own destruction. That's the issue. And again, elders slaughter sexual sin in their lives, not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how to. And so ladies, how are you doing with this issue? Because I'm not about to perpetuate the old myth that this is a guy's only issue, like lust is for guys and and modesty is for girls. No, this is an issue of the soul that transcends gender. How are you doing with the poisonous serpent of sexual lust? Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Are you setting worthless things before your eyes? Matthew 5, 27, 29, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the members of your body perish than for your whole body to go to hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Ephesians 5.3 says, Do not even let a hint of immorality or impurity even be named among you. Colossians 3.5 says, To put to death immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. How are you doing? Are you pursuing 
a life of uncompromising sexual purity by sovereign grace because I just want you to know you can have that. You can have that. The greener grass of a holy and blameless life is available to you. It's there for the taking. And it's there for the taking not by merely by trying harder necessarily not to sin, although that's probably true too. No, how that can be yours is through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in your place. Because did you know that his death in your place not only secured the forgiveness for the sins committed in the past, but it also provides the power you need to overcome sin and temptation in the future? Did you know that? Did you know that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have been freed and liberated out of the slave market of sin and you are no longer under the tyrant of sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. If you are in Christ, if you are in the vine, you don't have to give in to temptation. You don't have to. You see, Jesus died not just so that we could dodge the bullet of hell, but he died so that you could die to sin and live to righteousness. And I know what you're thinking. If that's true, Jared, that I'm really free from sin's clutches, like you say, then why is it still so hard not to sin? I mean, if it's really freedom that I possess, then why does it not feel like what I think freedom from sin should feel like? What's the diff between an unbeliever who's a slave to sin and a believer who still battles with sin? Because I'll be totally honest with you, sometimes there doesn't feel like there's much difference. How does this work? And I'll answer it like this. Wake up now. Because I'm about to give you the deepest answer the Bible has to give for how to overcome sin and temptation. Ready? To be freed from the slavery of sin means that we have been awakened by grace to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. I'm going to say that again. You need to feel that. To be freed from the slavery of sin means that we have been awakened by grace to the superior beauty of Christ, which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. In other words, we can say no to sin's counterfeit offer of counterfeit pleasures because now we have tasted the real thing and the real thing is Jesus Christ. Don't you see? No one, and I mean no one ever sins out of obligation. No one ever sins because they feel like they have to. We always sin because sin offers, pretends to offer pleasure. We sin because sin pretends to offer happiness. Sin is what we do when we are not captivated 
by Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen very carefully, bleary-eyed, battle-wearied warfare against sin is fought in the trenches of a superior delight in Jesus Christ that triumphs over the passing pleasures of sin. That's the issue. Listen to the way Augustine put it. A fourth century pastor, theologian, a hero of mine, and listen to what he says helped him finally triumph over the seductive power of sin. Listen very carefully to what he says. This, this is in a book called The Confessions of Augustine, and the whole thing is written to God. Listen to what he says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys of sin which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, God. You who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. My Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. There it is. Did you hear it? He's exactly right. You drove them from me, God, and you took their place. Why? Because you are sweeter than all pleasure. See, that's the answer. That's what freedom tastes like. That Jesus Christ is so compelling and exceptional and attractive and beautiful that all other competing pleasures are exposed to be exactly for what they are, namely, worthless. I hope that's hope-giving to you. There is hope. There's always hope in Christ. And that brings us, of course, to part two of category one. Part two of category one, because an elder must not only be lethal with lust, but he also must be faithful over his family. Look again at verse six. Look what Paul says. He says, appoint elders, Titus. Great idea. Who can be an elder? Well, if a man is blameless and above reproach. Okay, well, what does blameless and above reproach look like? Well, first, if he is the husband of one wife, and here it is, an elder must have <laughs> faithful, or maybe your Bible says Believing children who are not accused of debauchery or rebellion. That's the qualification. Did you hear it? To be an elder, he must have faithful, or again, some of your versions say, believing children. And isn't it interesting to you that this qualification made the cut? This one made the list. That, that the conduct of a man's children is on the list of elder requirements. Isn't that interesting to you at all? And that raises the question, why is this on the list? Why is the conduct of a man's children on the list of elder qualifications? What does the conduct of a man's children have anything to do with him serving as an elder? And you know why. You know exactly why it's on the list, don't you? The reason this made the cut get this now, is because a man's home is probably the truest test of who and what a man really is. Who and what a man is, is who and what he is when he is at home and he pulls into the garage and he opens the door and he hangs up his keys. That is who and what he really is in those moments. 
I mean, you think about it. First Timothy three, Paul's talking about elders and he poses this rhetorical question back in first Timothy three. Listen to what he says. He says, if a man does not know how to take care of his own household, how shall he take care of the church of God? Answer, if a man does not know how to take care of his own household, he should not and therefore he must not be entrusted to try to take care of the church of God as an elder. But the question is though, what does Paul even mean here? What, what does he mean when he, what he, what he talks, by what he talks about in Titus? Because what you may or may not know is that there is a massive debate as to the kind of children about which Paul speaks in Titus. There's, there's a huge debate. You see, there's a word in the text, pistos in the Greek, and that term can either mean believer or it can either mean faithful slash obedient. Believer, faithful slash obedient. And depending on how you understand the term, Paul is either talking about children who are born again believers who demonstrate the authenticity of their faith, or he's talking about children who are well-disciplined and faithful to submit to the authority of mom and dad. That's what he's talking about. They, they may or may not be believers necessarily, but they are nevertheless faithful. They are nevertheless obedient, however imperfect that obedience may be. They are faithful and obedient to submit to the loving leadership of mom and dad. That's the debate. Does that make sense? In other words, let's put it another way. Is Paul saying that to be an elder, a man must have, that his children must be authentic, proven, regenerated Christians. Is that what he's saying? Or is he simply saying that an, that an elder's children cannot be wild and out of control and disrespectful to mom and dad, but rather are well-disciplined and submit to their authority? Which does he mean? And I believe the answer is option B. I believe it's option B. I believe Paul means pistos as faithful, not pistos as believing. I believe he means pistos not in terms of saved children who have authentic faith in Christ, although that is the ideal, of course, that's what we want more than anything. But rather what he means, he means pistos in terms of well-taught, well-disciplined children who are respectful and who are taught by mom and dad to submit to the authority of mom and dad. I believe that is what Paul is saying. Now, don't get me wrong, having authentically, get this now, having authentically believing children who prize Christ as their highest treasure, that is every parent's dream and that is, that is the outcome for which all parents worth their salt hope and pray and plead with God to take place in their children. Let's be clear. I'm just saying having believing children is not necessarily Paul's requirement for an elder. And at this point, you should be longing for evidence because you look in your Bibles and it says believing, right? But again, you know that there's a semantic, a thing called a semantic range. A word can mean one thing in one context or another thing in another context, and it's the same word. And so you should be longing for evidence from the text that proves that Paul means faithful slash obedient and not believing. And there are three evidences that I believe indicate that Paul means faithful, not believing. Evidence number one, the very next sentence explains what Paul means by pistos. It explains what he means by pistos. 
He says to serve an elder, look at verse six, to serve an elder, a man must have faithful, maybe, believing, maybe, children. But what does that look like? Answer, they are not accused of debauchery or rebellion. That's, that's Paul's, the grammar demands that that phrase, that last phrase is explaining what he means by pistos. Now, this is very interesting because, because the kind of children that, that disqualify a man from serving as an elder in the local church is if they can be accused of debauchery or rebellion. And that term debauchery describes wild, out of control behavior that indulges in their cravings and appetites without restraint. I mean, think the prodigal son of Luke 15 who takes his inheritance and and leaves home and lives wild and out of control. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And Christ uses the exact same term. He says that man squandered his inheritance, here it is, with loose living. Same term as in Titus. It's not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, it's, it's any lazy or, or wild indulgence of one's cravings without restraint. Secondly, an elder is disqualified from serving as an elder in the local church if his children can be accused of rebellion. If his children can be accused of rebellion. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. Suspend thought for a minute. What he means by rebellion is insubordination, insubordinate defiance and disrespect to the authority of mom and dad. That's what that is. It's, it's kids who speak to their parents in rude, disrespectful ways, who display ongoing patterns of defiance and rebellion and insubordination. That's what Paul is talking about. My point is very simply this. If Paul is defining a Christian merely as someone who can't be accused of debauchery or rebellion, well, that's a pretty low bar to define what a Christian is. Do you follow the logic? If that's what he's defining a believer as, well, that's, that's a pretty low bar. But if he means faithful, then that makes perfect sense that he would say, okay, to be faithful, to have faithful children means that they cannot be accused of wild, reckless, out-of-control living, and they cannot be accused of defiance and disrespect to mom and dad. That's what he's after. Evidence number two, that Paul means faithful, not believing. This is helpful. Every single time Paul uses the word pistos in the letter to Titus, he means faithful, not believing. And in fact, this same term, pistos, occurs tens of thousands of times in ancient Greek documents. And I have looked at hundreds of them, ancient Greek stuff and the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the term occurs tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of times. And the vast majority, almost without exception, the term means faithful, not believing. Finally, evidence number three. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul gave a list of elder qualifications just like he did in Titus. He gave a list just like he did here. And there he said that an elder's children must be respectful and obedient and faithful to submit to the authority of the parents. My point is, whatever Paul means by pistos is guaranteed exactly what he means by the mirrored list in 1 Timothy 3. In other words, the list in 1 Timothy 3 defines and shapes and helps us understand what he means in Titus. In other words, although the wording is different, 
It's the exact same qualification. Paul is after submissive children who submit to the loving authority of mom and dad and not necessarily believers in Christ, although that is the ideal. So the question is, um, why does this matter? Why is this important? This is my punchline here. Why did this qualification make the team? That's the question, right? Why did this qualification make the team? And you can tell, can't you? This qualification is way less about the children, but about the father of those children, isn't it? This qualification about faithful children is way less about the children looking so wonderful and perfect and looking like the model family. And it's way more about the faithful, intentional, loving, proactive leadership of a faithful father. That's what Paul is after. It's way less about having perfect kids who conform to all the rules and have their hair combed straight and who, and who, don't, who don't, you know, fidget around during church. That's, that's not really what Paul's after. It's way more about loving, proactive, intentional dads who lead their families and own the burden and who shepherd their children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the issue. It's about the man. Because it's obvious, isn't it? A man's home is easily the greatest proving ground for his ministry because a man's home is his greatest ministry. I mean, how can you tell? How can you tell that a man who's going to be a pastor or a pastor slash elder, how can you tell that he's going to love you and shepherd you and care for you and instruct you and disciple you and help, and, and, and help equip you for the Great Commission? How can you tell that he's going to do that imperfectly, though it may be? It's a raw thing to be a pastor, I'll tell you. We're not victims. We love what we do, but man... We, we want to serve you so well, and we are so unbelievably imperfect. But how can you tell that a man is going to do that for you? If he does it in his home with his own children. That's how you know. And men, I just want you to know, this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff here, leading, instructing, teaching, discipling your children, this comes naturally to almost nobody. To almost nobody. This is intuitive and instinctive to very few men to know how to lead and shepherd and, and, and train and disciple your kids. That includes me. In fact, especially me. And so I just want you to know the elders of this church in April, we're going to start a family ministry a family ministry, the elders, we desperately want to shepherd families and, and give you the tools to not only uh, work on marriage things and have marriages that bring glory and display who Christ is, but we want to give you the tools to shepherd your own families, to make disciple makers, that your home would be a disciple making factory, that you would, you would, not that you don't do it now and not that you don't have some really good things going on, this will be a mutual collaboration between the families here. But what it's going to be is that we want the families of this church to be disciple makers, who make disciple makers, who make disciple makers, who reach God's elect until the plan is over. Because you see the connection, don't you? Between 
30,000 foot level, great commission, conquer the world kind of thing. I mean, really going out there and, and let's just change the world. You see the connection between that and the family, don't you? There is a direct connection. Godly men and godly women make great marriages that build strong families, that strengthen local churches, that advance the great commission that put Jesus Christ on display. I'll say this and then I'll close. Authentic church health is not measured by the bells and whistles and razzle-me-dazzle programs that give the mere impression of excitement or momentum. Rather, authentic church health happens when the men of a local church, the women too, but especially the men, when their passion is to be filled with the word of Christ and to make the spiritual health of other people their top priority, including especially their families. I close with this. You need to know, little flock, that the church is the most priceless entity on the face of the planet. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the only institution that King Jesus ever promised to build. The church is the primary instrument of God to advance the global cause of Jesus Christ in the world. And yet, to be a kind of church that does those things, you need leaders. And Paul calls them elders. Which tells us the Christ-exalting success of a local church or the Christ-defaming failure of a local church is first and foremost dependent upon the quality of the men you have in leadership. And just so you know, leaders like that, they don't come from nowhere. They don't come from trees. They don't even necessarily come from seminaries. You know where they come from? They come from families. And they come from local churches. Let's be a church like that, shall we? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give thanks to you. There is grace to cover. Lord, had it not been that your sin-bearing death pays and purchases in full for our salvation, had it not been that, that your blood covers all of our sins, oh Lord, what despair would we have? And yet, Lord, through no fault of our own, through no effort of our own, through no, no credit to ourselves, we stand before you blameless before the Father, justified, reconciled, redeemed, having every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and in that we rejoice. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us bold. I pray that you would make us warriors with our own sin. You'd make us courageous proclaimers of the gospel and that you would help us to be a church that changes the world always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen.